Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome to the Mobilities and Methods series, hosted by the New Books Network, in association with the Mobilities and Methods Lab at the University of Illinois at Chicago. The Mobilities and Methods Lab and the New Books Network partnership provide a platform for authors, readers, and their interlocutors to engage closely with questions of mobility and movement. My name is Lakshata Malik, and today I'm joined by Dr. Ronak Kapadia, Associate Professor and Director of Graduate Studies at Gender and Women's Studies and Affiliated Faculty at the Art History, Globalization Studies and Museum and Exhibition Studies at the University of Illinois at Chicago. We are in conversation about his book, Insurgent Aesthetics, Security and the Queer Life of the Forever War, published by Duke University Press in 2019. We look forward to hearing from Dr. Kapadia. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Lakshada. I'm so happy to be with you. Thanks for the invitation. Yay. So excited you're here. All right. So just the first question that I like to ask everybody, just how was this project conceived and how did you decide to write about uh, war using queer methodologies and especially the term that you use, queer calculus? Uh, Yes, absolutely. So the first thing to say, of course, is I have had a longstanding interest in the study of aesthetics and politics of Arabs, Muslims, and South Asians in the U.S., especially after the events of 9-11. So I've been researching and writing about cultural production and diasporic cultural production for many years. And I was in graduate school, actually, in the late Bush, early Obama era, when the Western media started to proliferate stories about surgical strikes and drone warfare and this move from ground troops and counterinsurgency during the Bush era to drone strikes and counterterrorism in the Obama years. And so I realized that I was going to be interested in the study of late modern warfare and that I wanted to marry that with my other longstanding engagements with queer and feminist studies, especially queer of color critique and women of color critique in particular. And so part of what I'm trying to do in the book is make the argument. And what first, let me just say that, you know, so the book, In Search and Aesthetics, it tries to theorize the queer world-making potential of contemporary art and aesthetics in the ongoing context of U.S. war and empire in the greater Middle East with an explicit focus on the post-Cold War expansion of U.S. security governance in Iraq, Afghanistan, Pakistan, and Palestine. And so the book analyzes how you know, global militarized security practices have affected immigrants and refugees in the U.S. and how transnational visual artists, in turn, have exposed and contested the violence of U.S. planetary war through their solo and collaborative art making. Um, so in short, you know, the book is trying to investigate how, how artists challenge violence and ongoing histories of U.S. militarism and also create these alternative ways of knowing, feeling, and sensing beyond permanent war. And so in that process, I realized that queer studies was going to be an important part of the theoretical engine behind my project and that I wanted to think about queerness as a kind of reading practice, as a sort of methodology. And so I have developed this concept of a queer calculus in the book's introduction, and I see it as a kind of of epistemological and affective intervention. Um, 
And in the process, realizing that queer studies would offer this kind of unexpected reservoir of political inspiration and theoretical power in order to give the book's account of the forever war a different valence. And so in short, the idea of a queer calculus is that it's this critical hermeneutic strategy through which racialized and dispossessed peoples, including Arabs, Muslims, and South Asians in the diaspora, have created alternative world-making knowledge projects to render visible or sensuous all that's been absented or ghosted by the abstractions of the forever war. You know, in the book's introduction, I offer the concept of a queer calculus as an epistemological and affective intervention. And in so doing, I dwell on the essential, if unexpected, reservoir of political inspiration and theoretical power that the field of queer studies affords the book's account of the forever war. <clears throat> so part of what I'm arguing here is that the book is questioning the abstractions and rationalities of U.S. imperial discourse and the statistical mode through which the forever war's collateral damage is often calculated, aggregated, and divided. And in the process, I want to expose another calculus, a stranger calculus, what I call a queer calculus of bodies in pain and bodies that imagine alternatives to that pain. And so queer calculus is about inhabiting another arithmetic altogether, one that constructs a slantwise relation to how imperial wars have usually been measured conventionally, including body counts, combat time, military budgets, and the price of oil. And so this critical hermeneutics is actually at odds with the state's own necropolitical calculations, um, an investment in numeracy and counting that dates back to the very early American slave period, um, all the way through the contemporary period. And so, you know, part of what I'm arguing in the book is that global counterinsurgencies and wars disorganize and destroy communal modes of belonging for racialized and diasporic populations who've been targeted by forever wars. And so we need an anti-racist, a feminist, and decolonial queer calculus not only to identify an alternative frame from which to actually interpret these violent practices, but also signal an entirely new mode of inhabiting and feeling the world collectively and relationally in times of neoliberal security and war. So queerness here has this kind of unexpected resonance in the book. And I'm also arguing that, you know, we queer studies itself can be refashioned and be rethought uh, by, um, you know, thinking through the violent practices that I engage in the book, everything from aerial bombings and remote warfare to military detention and extrajudicial judicial torture to the atmospheric and subterranean politics of U.S. and Israeli settler colonialism. And so these are all the kind of flasher, major flashpoints of neoliberal security and war that I examine in the book. And part of what I'm trying to say is, you know, how, what are the effects of these violent practices on the gendered, racialized, and sexualized bodies that are their targets? And also what alternative forms of being and belonging do these vulnerable bodies in turn enact and imagine through culture and performance? Um, so I think queer capcus is really the kind of critical framework and engine behind my project in that sense. Right, right. No, thank you for that. What is something that you grapple with in your work is this idea of distance. Uh, yeah. You talk about war on terror, you talk about but not necessarily, you decenter the empire in many ways. You talk about the war on terror in relationship to the war on crime, for instance. And and it's really that, that the, the idea of sort of playing with that inside and outside the empire and playing with the idea of borders that you really do across the book. Could you talk to us a little bit about that? 
Yes, absolutely. So, you know, I think one of the um, purchases of having studied transnational American studies at the moment in which I was in graduate school was that a lot of scholars were starting to pay attention to both the, the, the domestic and international aspects of U.S. empire simultaneously, right? So this was the era of the war on terror after 9-11, when we realized that the questions of detention and deportation and mass incarceration that lots of folks were looking at in the U.S. context was inextricably linked to the sort of overseas wars and military occupations um, in the global south. And one of the central goals of this book is in fact, to link the domestic racial politics of Arabs, Muslims, and South Asians in the U.S. to those overseas wars and occupation in the greater Middle East. These are usually studied uh, in silos, right? They're studied distinctly. And part of what I'm trying to do is to bring the scholarship, activism, organizing, artistic production into synergetic relation. And so this is part of a more broader shift, we could say, in the fields of comparative ethnic and American studies, toward the post-colonial study of the United States itself, right? And to try to investigate the intimacies between the sort of internal structures and processes of US empire at home, if you will, and the external histories of imperial rule abroad. And um, you know, in doing that, part of what I'm trying to also engage is the inextricable history of race and empire to explain the changing calculus of domestic and foreign governance that link the so-called, as you said, war on crime and war on terror. Usually, again, those are studied differently. They're part of different conversations. But if we think about the domestic and global dimensions of U.S. imperial violence, of neoliberal political and economic projects of security, those are all equally central to what I'm calling the forever war, right? <clears throat> so these U.S. wars on crime, on drugs, on migrants, all of which militarized law enforcement, expanded the prison industrial complex in the U.S., and implemented a domestic war on terror and deportation regime, um, are all worth studying collectively and synergetically. And that's part of what I'm trying to do in the work. And in that sense, the artists themselves, who are all diasporic artists, people who are based primarily in the United States and Europe, <clears throat> are also trying to engage with those questions about distance, about home and abroad in complicated and new ways as a result of their own sort of di complicated diasporic and transnational trajectories. Right. Now I want to come back to the question of diaspora, but before we sort of jump into that, I really want to talk about visuality with you, which is such a key yeah. register uh, in, in your sort of uh, how you approach aesthetics and what you call insurgent aesthetics in particular. And the yeah. sort of uh, how do you position these insurgent aesthetics in relationship to dominant modes of seeing, quote unquote? Right. That's such a good question. And, you know, this is certainly a visual cultural project. It's a visual studies project, but it's also trying to mine the contradictions and complexities of visuality, right? And try to displace a kind of sense of dominant imperial visuality, as, you, as you're putting here, that dominant mode of seeing. Um, and insurgent aesthetics is offered as a kind of as a kind of um, contestatory site in relationship to that privileged regime of power. And so one of the arguments that I make early in the book is that the field of vision is central to the manufacture and global supremacy of U.S. war-making regimes and to the violent regulation of race and gender and sexualized bodies under the conditions of state security and surveillance. And so here, you know, I'm following the work of uh, visual studies scholars and um, scholars in, the, in cultural studies who have um, gotten us to think about the central links between modern visuality, knowledge, and power, right? So many theorists have 
you know, made the argument that visual and conceptual frames have contributed to the manufacture and obliteration of populations as objects of knowledge and targets of war across the long 20th century. And this is why I spent so much time in the book sort of unpacking um, the discourses and theories around the idea of the drone and the role of aerial counterinsurgency or aerial counterterrorism um, and the innovation of the drone as a kind of military technology that emerged after the Cold War, during the period of the revolution in military affairs in the 1990s onwards, um, it was first sort of first developed really in the Bush era and then completely um, expanded during the Obama reign, right? Um, so this view from above, this dominant view from above. And part of what I'm, you know, in, in the turn in the book, I, I say that um, tactical and haptic knowledge can actually elicit sometimes an alternative, contradictory conceptualization of social relations than that offered by visually based epistemologies. So part of what I want to do in the book is look at the way that visual installation and performance artists are playing with the regime of the visible and using these other extra visual sensory relations. And the argument here is that sensations reveal sometimes an otherwise inaccessible um, feelings that are otherwise inaccessible uh, to the regime of the visible. And that actually can make possible other ways of organizing collective social life beyond the dominant logics of the security state. And so in that sense, the book displaces the overemphasis on visual culture and analyses of transnational war and focuses on lesser studied senses, including things like touch and sound. And so part of what I'm trying to say is that these extra visual sensory relations have become newly vital to U.S. security governance in the contemporary period, both as actual military weapons. And so, for example, we can think of the use of music as torture in Guantanamo, for instance, but also as resources for diasporic public cultures and for contemporary art. Um, so this attention to embodied performance art practices in one of the chapters, specifically through a reading of the Iraqi-born artist Wafa Bilal's tactile performances of pain, um, reveals how insurgent aesthetics approaches the body and the sensorial regimes otherwise in the context of aerial and drone wars. Um, in another chapter, chapter three, I explore these questions um, of aesthetic responses to U.S. military detention and confinement glo globally, analyzing how collaborative art practices by um, the now defunct organization or collective called the Visible Collective and the Index of the Disappeared, which is a duo of artists based in New York City, Chitrika Nation, Mariam Ghani. Um, all of their works try to manipulate vision and visuality in interesting ways to conjure an aesthetics of warm data, which I know is something that you want to talk about in a bit as well. And warm data here is a sensuous record of the kind of absences and redactions in archives of the U.S. security state. And then in the final chapter, chapter four, I try to explore the kinds of queer sensorial approaches to flight and escape and weightlessness and fantasy in the context of the ongoing Israeli occupation of Palestine. And here I'm showing how diverse diasporic cultural forms develop queer feminist approaches to embodied sensory relations, seeing bodies not only as texts, but as flesh and bones, material and not just materialized through social relations. And so in all of these settings, you know, an account of what I'm calling a queer calculus of the forever war takes up the conjoined material and discursive connotations of the phrase in order to capture how affects, fantasies, sentiments, and the senses have figured it and mattered to the shaping of U.S. empire and, and its insurgent undoing in these multiple sites across the forever war. And so by insurgency, I'm really trying to summon the kind of, um, you know, radical histories of um, 
disorder and rebellion and refusal and fugitivity to that dominant security order in the new world. And saying that these Arab, Muslim, and South Asian diasporic artists are part of that long and rich tradition, right? And so part of what I'm saying in the book is that an attention to insertion aesthetics points to these other ways of collectively sensing and knowing the forever war outside the constraints of dominant imperial visuality, that view from above, that view of the visual order that is all about conquering and knowing and obliterating the world order, right? And that artists give us all of the supple um, um, and fleshy and haptic and sensorial attention um, that offers a kind of different epistemological entrance point to expose, so as to better dismantle, those circuits of imperial violence that I'm trying to connect in the project at large. And so the work of the artists is about offering us a kind of alternative epistemological entrance point or a way of thinking and knowing the forever war. Right. No, I, I really like that idea of uh, that insurgent structure of feeling to sort of quote Raymond Williams that is made possible through these insurgent visualities, right? So, yeah, I really like that idea. Uh, Coming back to this question of the drone, right? You really use this as a a novel yet historically sort of embedded material frontier of the politics of um, visuality. And the drone not only becomes this side of enabling and disabling certain forms of viewing, but also certain forms of moving, not only Mm -hmm. for the people who are controlling them, but also people who are at the receiving end of the violence that ensues through these drones. How do you conceptualize this idea of mobility or immobility in connection to security and safety? Well, this is really interesting because I think, you know, the way that drone studies and now it's an emergent subfield of its own in some sense over the last decade or so, uh, because there's a lot of people who are interested in the kind of remote aspects of warfare, people, the unmanned aspects of it, the non-human machinic assemblage dimensions of drones. Then there are people who um, want to think through the kind of ethical and political aspects of what it means to prosecute, um, you know, this form of militarism and, and, and sort of kill technology from the air there's that sort of side of things and what i've wanted to kind of hone in on is what are the kind of collateral aftermaths and and sensorial experiences for people who are um subject to and on the sort of receiving end of the drone right i think because part of what's happened in militarism studies late modern warfare studies surveillance studies is that there's so much techno um, scientific fetish and fascination with these new gadgets of, of, mil- of the military, right? And, um, you know, the even drone technologies have transformed so much over the last several years that, you know, in the book's introduction, I talk about the kind of swarm of killer bee, killer bee drones that are, you know, emergent and the fact that this technology is now being, which was innovated by the US and its various settler allies around the world is now being sold to hundreds of countries and local police departments all over the world. And that, you know, we're going to start to see the drone um, even here in our own city of Chicago on the South and West side, starting to police racialized neighborhoods and cordon off neighborhoods. Right. So drone creep is here to stay. And this military technology is going to get more and more embedded in um, the way that policing and security regimes operate in the U S context, but also globally. And so that's a reality that we need to contend with and reckon with. And for organizers and activists and scholars who are interested in drones to really connect, again, the kind of 
um, domestic and international context of U.S. imperialism and U.S. warfare is really central here, right? Because there is this boomerang effect where at once the drone was the kind of technology that was being experimented on in the so-called laboratories of U.S. frontier violence in spaces like AFPAC, right? The borderlands region of Afghanistan and Pakistan, Iraq, Syria, Niger, Libya, and beyond, right? Across the greater Middle East region. But that that technology is now then going to be implemented back and reverberate here in the domestic sphere. And it's already happening, as we've seen even this year during the protests this summer and the various uprisings and insurgencies, um, black-led insurgencies across North America, that there are customs and border protection drones from the U.S.-Mexico border that are suddenly starting to make their way to Chicago and Milwaukee and Minneapolis and various cities in the northern end of the United States. And so we need to be mindful that the drone is a kind of suture. It's a way of tracing um, the kind of imperial circuits of violence that I've been talking about. Um, But that doesn't mean that we should just lay down and call it a day, right? That there are also, as a result of the kind of disordering, um, disaggregating effects of the drone. So, you know, part of what I talk about in the book's chapter, the first chapter, is how the drone has upended life for people in AFPAC. It has disrupted communal forms of gathering, funerals, weddings, um, jirga system, communal gatherings, right, Um, in, in tribal regions across Afghanistan and Pakistan. And what that has meant um, is that it has um, disrupted and broken the fabric of people's everyday lives, right? And people who experience the effects of drones. And part of what my larger argument in the book is that U.S. counterinsurgencies and counterterrorism are always creating these kinds of divisions and divides in the populace. It's precisely what they're doing, you know, what Foucault called a cesura in the in the in in the population. The kinds of divides that are being constructed between the kind of biopolitical and necropolitical dimensions of the state. That that disaggregation also produces the conditions of possibility for new forms of alliance, of new forms of coalition, of people realizing that they're connected. And that their struggles are connected um, as a result of the kind of varied and variegated forms of U.S. um, state violence that are being prosecuted all over the world, including in the United States. And so I'm sort of optimistic, in a sense, about the question of uh, what the drone uh, portends for us in, in, in this moment in the 21st century is that, you know, it both creates these disaggregations and disorders and division, but it creates the possibilities for new forms of what I'm calling sensuous affiliations. And certainly the book's discussion of Arabs and Muslims and South Asians um, is a way of getting at this question of comparison and relationality of communities um, that are don't necessarily have much in common per se, right? Even though we now clump those categories together of Arab, Muslim, South Asian, right? Um, but it's because new forms of solidarity have emerged between those categories as a result of the kind of racializing assemblages of the state and as a result of these technologies like the drone. And so I think part, what's interesting to me is to see how communities of, um, of solidarity, how uh, communities, of, uh, political communities that are non-blood-based in form, that are anti-identitarian, that are deeply queer, in fact, um, can emerge as a result of these kind of U.S. military arrangements, as opposed to just stopping with a discussion of U.S. militarism writ large with the drone itself. So the drone, I don't know, is that making sense, Lecture, the idea that... Yeah, no, yeah, that the idea that the drone is something we should, and that all military technologies and all of the kind of rubrics and vocabularies and lexicon of the state, we should study that. We should be mindful of that, but we shouldn't stop there, right? Our our 
sort of political imaginations have been so impoverished by the way that we are forced to think about terrorism and militarism and warfare in the post 9-11 period. And that's partly why we need to go to artists and activists and, and, and you know, and people who are have a kind of rebellious and wayward um, relationship to these archives, because that's the only way we're going to think our way out of war, right? Um, the moment, as Judith Butler talks about, the war, the moment that war misses its mark. And that's precisely what I'm trying to attend to in the book. Right. No, it's incredibly optimistic in so many ways, I have to say, your book. Um, You mentioned these sort of new sensuous affiliations between communities that were no, were not necessarily one community to begin with, but, but have been formed through this interaction with Forever War. And and you talk about performances of Arab, Muslim, and South Asian diasporic artists, but you are very attentive to the differences and their different transnational and imperial relationships. Could you speak a little to the sort of difference, the, the subtle differences between their uh, transnational experiences of either coming from a particular place to the United States or being born in the United States within an immigrant community? Yes, absolutely. This is such an important point. And it's something that, you know, in the many rounds of revisions and thinking about this book manuscript, I I wanted to dwell with and I got a lot of really great feedback and support from, um, you know, scholarly mentors around this question, because I think this speaks to the kind of promise and perils of doing comparative work. Um, And this isn't really a comparative studies project, but it is a project that is invested in the politics of comparison and relationality. And, you know, by that, I mean that the fact that many racialized and indigenous peoples have been targeted by contemporary U.S. global war making, right? And they experience differential degrees of precarity and vulnerability and dispossession and misery and risk in relationship to the U.S. national security state. And that that national security state is also a shape-shifting assemblage, right? So that's tricky. How do you, how do you manage that? How do, how do I both attend to the specificities of um, Arab and Arab American and Arab diasporic populations um, of South Asian and South Asian diasporic populations without conflating the two uh, while holding them in a kind of, as I've been saying, synergetic relation. And there, you know, I'm inspired by the work of a whole generation of post-colonial feminist scholars, Ella Shohat, Lisa Lowe, uh, my own mentor, Gayatri Gopinath, you know, so many people who have been thinking about um, how to put seemingly disparate histories, geographies, discourses, memories in synergetic relation without flattening out the specificities of the content, right? So this is about, this question is really about comparison in a sense. Um, And in in also in doing that, you know, I should say that the book, while it's about the contemporary period, it understands that settler colonial histories of settlement, of land theft, of native genocide, of African chattel slavery, of Asian indentured exploitation, all of that is wholly vital to the genealogy of the U.S. forever war that I trace throughout the book, as well as its racist architecture of social control, right? And so in that sense, I see... um, you know, the broader U.S. national security project to be integral to settler colonial processes in North America and constitutive to the genesis of the modern state and its capitalist mode of production. And so while the book is primarily about um, contemporary Arab, Muslim and South Asian artists and activists and organizers after 9-11, one of my urgent goals in the book is to connect that 
contemporary history, because now it's history, of course, right? It's been two decades, to the longstanding history of Black and Native-led rebellion in the New World against sort of dominant security regimes and orders. And so that's a tricky thing to do, of course. And, um, you know, I, I use a lot of scholarship in the field in order to make that kind of argument. But, you know, given this kind of sprawling global imperial formation, we could, which could go in so many different directions, I have chosen to focus on the aesthetics and politics of contemporary Arabs, Muslims, and South Asians in the U.S. and Europe, and, and their transnational networks of knowledge and affect and affiliation. And I've, I've done so, I think, for three principal reasons. So I'll just list that, um, and then we can continue from there. But the first is that you know the majority of the people that I write about in the book are women artists who trace their origins back to numerous countries across the greater Middle East and South Asia, including Iraq, Af Iraq Afghanistan, Lebanon, India, Bangladesh, Pakistan and Palestine. And so together they comprise this kind of multiple, you know, geographic, religious and supranational ethnic identities. And I think this relational lens powerfully captures how the events of September 11th have collided with both older histories of imperial imperialism, gender racism, heteropatriarchy, neoliberal capitalism, Islamophobia, and US Orientalism while also amplifying the kinds of new modes of anti-Muslim, anti-Arab, anti-Palestinian, anti-South Asian racisms that have emerged in the 21st century in the United States in particular. So um, I wanted to try to capture all of that complexity simultaneously. The second reason that I'm focusing on this sort of sliver of the larger constellation is that I'm focusing on the visionary and world-making potential of these contemporary artists and aesthetics in the context of U.S. war and empire because they've been actually sorely under-investigated in the scholarly literature on Arab, Muslim, and South Asian diasporas. There's so such an overwhelming focus um, in anthropology, in sociology, in the traditional social sciences to think about these populations and their various questions that they emerge, you know, that, that they, they foster in the post 9-11 period. And I wanted to say that actually art and art history and performance studies and visual studies um, and that centering the social potential of aesthetics as a kind of queer feminist fugitive strategy for critiquing those politics and reimagining collective social life under the conditions of surveillance and security that I look at is actually really vital. So it offers a kind of antidote and intervention within the field of, we might say broadly, Arab Muslim South Asian diaspora studies, right? And then the, the third thing I would say here is that, you know, many of the artists that, I've, that I look at in the book have grown in prominence over the last decade in the fine art world, uh, but they largely remain understudied in visual culture, in art history, and in performance studies. And so the book is trying to contribute to these scholarly fields by explicitly highlighting the work of contemporary Arab and Muslim and South Asian diaspora feminist cultural producers as indispensable to both U.S. and North American, as well as international art worlds and markets alike. And so in that sense, I'm also making the argument back to people who, who care about art in relationship to the global war on terror, but that who often see that the art production of Arabs and Muslims and South Asians and otherwise racialized and minoritarian subjects is a kind of um, native informancy, right? Like they're often treated as native informants who give us knowledge about their homelands and the way that their homelands have been ravaged by questions of U.S. militarism. And I'm trying to say that actually, no, these artists are producing a kind of knowledge project that is quite central for us to understand war on terror. And that 
um, we do a disservice by treating um, only offering a kind of sociological rendering of their art practices, right? Like the way that we talk about, you know, art of the Arab Spring or art of the middle of the contemporary Middle East, right? Um, because a lot of that kind of evacuates the complexity and contradiction of the work at large. And, you know, to, you know, more pointedly to your question, I think part of what I'm saying here is that these artists, and I've chosen a really, uh, I would say, very sort of select radical sliver of artists who are all themselves um, activists and scholars and critics of the U.S. forever warfare in the greater Middle East, right? So they are artists who have had this privileged transnational art activist trajectory that is paradoxically upheld by U.S. empire in global cities like New York and Dhaka and Amsterdam and Berlin, right? And that this complicated social location of somebody um, who, you know, experiences a kind of transnational, um, who, someone who has access to transnational mobility situates them differently from many of the racialized and dispossessed subjects of their own artworks, including criminalized immigrant detainees and suspected enemy combatants who I write about who are forced to suffer the dividing brutalities of U.S. empire as military targets, either in the U.S., um, at U.S. military prison sites or in the global south. And so, you know, in short, for many of these artists, it's precisely this kind of privileged lack of proximity to non-Western populations and social geographies that are most ravaged by U.S. global warfare in the greater Middle East that actually haunts their insurgent aesthetic practices. Much of their work reflects precisely on this hardened, tenuous line that divides them from violent conflict and its collateral afterworlds. And that is certainly true for those of us in the diaspora writ large, right? Um, those of us in the academy as well. And this is, of course, despite the fact that there are these histories of Western colonialism and anti-colonial nationalism and post-colonial citizenship and U.S. racialization, of course, that they often share with many of those that they seek to recuperate from archives of the U.S. security state. And so, you know, where I land at the end of the introduction, as I try to navigate this complexity and contradiction, is that one way to depict these artists' own insurgency against their kind of structural complicity with state violence, and this is true for all of us, right, is that it's in how they wrestle with their own structural participation in the post 9-11 forever war in their formal works as diasporic subjects who are estranged from the war's cruelest victimizations, even while they're simultaneously being racialized with these populations through the complex visual order of the forever war machine. Um, does that make sense, Lakshita? So part of what I'm trying to you know, navigate is that um, artists are not the same as the populations that they um, are engaging or thinking through through their art practices, just as scholars of those of us in the South Asian diaspora, um, those of us who are intellectuals or you know, occupy spaces in the academy, are at quite some remove from those populations who are most under siege. And yet there's a kind of critical knowledge that comes through with, as a result of that kind of diasporic and transnational affiliation that is completely being lost in the broader discussions about, um, you know, let's say it, white American artists who write about questions of war and terror or whose art practices are about war and terror that completely evacuate this kind of messiness and this messy entanglement, entanglement of brownness that I'm trying to track in the book. Does that make sense? Does that come across? That, that does that does make sense and, and sort of reflects also in your title, you know, the idea of the forever, which sort of effectively yeah. sort of 
avoids that entire trap of inside, outside, within, outside, you know, all of those things. And so it does make sense within that constant, uh, context of the transnational mobility of these artists and, and the complex relationship they share with, quote-unquote, their people and communities as opposed to the U.S. empire. Mm-hmm. And within that framework of sort of avoiding that... Uh, binary between inside and outside is this question of waiting that also emerges from uh, your idea this sort of notion of forever war and you also view it not only as a site of violence but also as a site of uh, something more optimistic which you've already sort of talked about can you talk to us a little more about waiting and and the special role that insurgent performances of these artists sort of play in this sort of uh, relationship of waiting to yeah. and, I think yeah. part, part of what you're getting at too is that that kind of interstitial liminal space of waiting and I you know I look at that specifically in the context of detention right is that what mm-hmm. you're thinking of here yeah, you know yeah, that yeah that you know detention and U.S. military uh, global prison sites so Guantanamo Abu Ghraib um, you know all the kind of secret black site detention centers that exist all over the world that we don't even know the names of um, they kind of occupy this um, liminal gray site, right? They are um, they're these sites of torture, of extraordinary rendition, of transnational abduction, of secret prisons. They exist at this kind of legal gray zone of U.S. military bases and detention sites around the globe, right? And so part of what I do in chapter three of the book, sort of the hinge point of the book, is this uh, very lengthy chapter where I try to analyze creative works that confront the imperial and necropolitical orders of the U.S. forever war, as I do throughout. But I want to engage in analysis of 21st century carceral practices as part of a kind of longer and more continuous history of invasion and military occupation through the United States, um, through which the U.S. has actually affirmed its sovereignty in North America and in the world at large. And so spaces like Guantanamo are are particularly interesting to scholars and artists who want to think about how the role of the detention facility, right, which is certainly in the news constantly today as we think about, you know, um, child separation, uh, family separation of of children at the U.S.-Mexico border, right, and all the kinds of torture regimes that are being innovated in the context of COVID and coronavirus and the way... um, imprisoned people, primarily disproportionately black and brown people in the United States, but then also around the world, are being held at these facilities that are these long-standing sites of confinement for those who are, for example, waiting asylum or facing de- deportation, that they exist sort of within and outside the history of U.S. global counterinsurgencies, right? They're not over there in the site of AFPAC, right, or the greater Middle East, and they're not necessarily here on the U.S. domestic space. And so it's sort of out of sight and out of mind, which is why the work of artists like the Index of the Disappeared is so important to get us to think about the ongoing afterlives of the torture regimes of, of, of the war on terror and its aftermath, right? So U.S. military detention is one major dimension of the forever war that I talk about in the book. And part of what I'm saying here is that it's built upon distressed embodiments, right? The distressed embodiment and forced disembodied, forced disembodiment of the racialized and dispossessed enemies of war in ways that make my broader focus on embodied vulnerability and the human sensorium in the book particularly cogent to an analysis of what I'm calling the sensorial and somatic life of empire. And so 
chapter three in particular tries to shift away from those dominant visual logics of empire of the drones that we were talking about earlier toward these kinds of alternative sensorial reg registers, the sort of affective structures of resistance and subjugative knowledges in works of art that evoke that embodied queer calculus of the forever war. Um, and so, uh, you know, I look at a range of visual art practices in this project in that chapter um, around the visible collective and the index of the disappeared. And it's a different way of thinking about what I'm calling the innards of empire, right? Again, getting to the sort of blood and marrow and bones of the structural formation of forever warfare, but doing so by attending to visual art projects that are all about redaction and mistranslation and disappearance, all of which is being wrought by the US military empire. Um, so I don't, I don't know if that was too vague, but I, and sometimes part of what I'm trying to say is that the space of waiting, the space of the detention facility is actually a useful site for us to think about um, not the inner life of the detainee per se, but the inner life of US empire, right? The kind of psychic and affective hauntings that produce um, this idea of forever warfare. Hmm. No, no, that does make sense. And yeah. Now I'm going to move to the part that I was most interested in and I've saved the best for last, which is the <laughs> idea of the warm data and yes. especially sort of coming through in the works of the artist and the anatomical designs of uh, Raj Kamal Kalon and you sort of, it's sort of in in a way sort of dismantles the coldness and the stillness of state produced pictures and yes. archives and data uh, and sort of inoculates a vibrancy and dynamism in them. Yeah. And I would really like to hear more about that or what this warmness does. Yeah. Isn't this, this is some of the most gorgeous and most visually <laughs> arresting work, I think, in the work, in, in the book. And, you know, I fought, I fought hard to get lots of color photographs and of all of the artwork. And there's a 16 page color insert in the book. And I really wanted to feature the work of Raj Kamala. I think her, she's a, this Berlin based Indian American artist who was the first artist in residence at the ACLU, the American Civil Liberties Union in New York City. And, you know, she was working in the archives of these um, FOIA archives, basically of the torture FOIA. And the FOIA, of course, is like um, the kind of uh, declassification process whereby which, um, you know, ACLU and other legal entities sue the government to get access to these documents. And in this treasure trove of the so-called torture archive, she was able to find these U.S. military autopsies of Iraqi and Afghan men who had been interrogated, detained, and sometimes often killed in the context of their interrogation in U.S. military prisons, including places like Guantanamo. And so she's using those primarily redacted documents, right, that are part of this torture FOIA archive as the literal backdrop to these otherwise gorgeously arresting paintings that she's produced, where she's taken um, the kind of anatomical figures from European textbooks from the 19th century um, that were about the history and the medical, of, you know, medical racial science and phrenology and um, that looked at um, these skeletons, basically. Um, and so she's sort of drawing those Euro European anatomical um, figures onto 
these redacted documents. And then she literally waterboards those documents in carrageenan and ink and produces these pink swirly patterns um, that are also really gorgeous and visually sumptuous, but that speak to the kind of biological and somatic and sensorial dimension of the experiences of interrogation that I've been talking about, right? And that I talk about throughout the book. And so, as you said, yes, it's precisely about um, revivifying (laughs) these bodies that we only know about through redacted archives, right? Because there's no other sort of connection to, um, you know, or there's no other way to eulogize and memorialize the people who died in detention. And she's using this concept, well, I'm saying that she's using this concept of warm data, which I should say is a phrase that was innovated by the artist Mariam Ghani, who is an Afghan Lebanese American artist based in Brooklyn, who's used the concept of warm data in her now 15-year-long collaboration with the Indian American artist Chitra Ganesh. Um, The two of them together comprise the duo, the Index of the Disappeared, which I mentioned earlier. And these artists have thought about the idea of a warm database as a way of Um, again, revivifying and moving beyond the kind of cold, hard facts that are used against detainees and people who are caught up in the surveillance security dragnet, the the kind of cold, hard facts used against you in a court of law, right? So warm data, I'm trying to make the argument, is this conceptual art strategy, a feminist methodology that conjures the violent absences and haunted objections in these carceral archives of U.S. military detention. And so, you know, one of the things I'm trying to say in this in this particular chapter is that the Forever War is this inhumane project that transforms institutions, economies, and intimate relationships alike. And that a queer feminist decolonial method of queer calculus locates the Forever War's violently unfolding archives as repositories not only of data and information, as we well know, but also of these kinds of collective affects and memories and structures of feeling that can elicit subjugated knowledge about the dispossessed and their critical relation to the social world. And so I think Marin Ghani is developing this insurgent aesthetics of warm data in her ongoing collaborative art practice with Chitra on immigrant detention and deportation in order to distinguish, as I said, those kinds of hard factual informations typical of legal and bureaucratic systems, um, but marrying it with the unquantifiable aspects of human life. And so part of what I say is that warm data juxtaposed with the weaponization of cold, hard facts evokes heat intensity, vibration, feeling, energy, affect, right? It moves us away from the kind of dominant sensorial experiences that we usually traditionally have with militarized information and surveillance that are primarily through the ocular or the scopic. Um, And it moves us to, um, you know, open these kinds of other ways of knowing war, destruction, and collective survival. And so I'm really drawn by um, Ghani's understanding of of warm down. And I, I will say that that conceptual framework has been um, really crucial for me in thinking and trying to capture the kind of broader aesthetic, political, and sensorial demands that South Asian and Arab diasporic artists are are making and using when they deal with these kind of cold bureaucracies of empire as the raw materials for their interventions. And so in that sense, all of the artists that I look at in the book, as I mentioned earlier, are theorists and archivists themselves, right? They are people who are very much engaged and into, attuned to the dominant archive of late modern war and empire, but they don't rest there. Instead, they're trying to engage that material as the kind of raw substance to go somewhere else to imagine otherwise. And I think that's precisely that kind of insurgent otherwise that I'm trying to gesture at throughout the book. 
No, yeah. I mean, that idea of taking data not as it as its face to its face value, but but as a raw material for something quite queer is very sort of central to your text and and comes through again and again and again. And I, I really appreciate that. Uh, I think those are the questions I have. Thank you so much, Dr. Kaparia, for joining us and for all of your insights. Once again, I am Lakshita Malik, and this discussion of insurgent aesthetics, security, and the queer life of the forever war published by Duke University Press in 2019 has been brought to you by the New Books Network in association with the Mobilities and Methods Lab at the University of Illinois at Chicago. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you.